0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter twelve. John chapter twelve. We're going to be looking at verses one through eleven this morning. John chapter twelve, verses one through eleven. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us. It should be in the seat right in front of you, or there are a few of those uh, sprinkled throughout. John chapter one uh, is on or John chapter twelve. I'm sorry, is on page 845 in that pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, we would welcome you and ask you to take that Bible as a gift from us. Uh, We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your home, so please uh, take that as a gift if you don't own a Bible. 845 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 this morning. We're going to be looking at the worshiper and the thief this morning, the worshiper and the thief. Last week we saw the response of the religious leaders to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead And uh, the main concern with them being that their kingdom, rather than God's kingdom, is what they wanted to establish. We saw that their intention was to kill Jesus, and we studied how this was indeed a part of God's uh, perfect uh, ordained plan. Though they were the cause of his death, ultimately this is God's foreordained plan. We looked at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 last week, and it showed that to us. And because of this plan to kill him, Jesus essentially removes himself uh, from pub- the public eye until the time of his death is according to the plan. And we see movement toward exposure actually today in our passage when all of all things, <laughs> Jesus goes to Bethany, back to the scene that started all this final preparation for his death by the Sanhedrin in the first place. And so we see this movement towards exposure here. If you're able to, just kind of stand one more time this morning as I read aloud our text and you follow along. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the ones reclined with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, was, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor, footnote real quickly, in the other accounts, it says that the other apostles agreed with him in that statement. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge in the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, both in the Old and New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, this morning as we open your word, we are reminded that your word is indeed inspired in the original autographs by your Holy Spirit, and we know that we need your Spirit now to attend to us in this time to give us illumination, Lord, of this text and application of it in our lives. And we pray that we would not merely gain knowledge to puff us up, but that we might put knowledge to action, uh, and exercise wisdom as a result of what we learn today. I pray, Lord, that you would humble me and get me out of the way. Lord, indeed, may we only glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by the end of our time here. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Some of you may uh, know the name Mez McConnell I hope one day to have Mez come and preach and talk to us about gospel ministry. Mez is um, from uh, Scotland. He is a minister there, comes from a very rough background, um, was um, arrested at age 12 for assault, put in jail. Uh, Then again at age 16 uh, for trying to stab some people to death, Uh, was a drug runner, was a drug user, was a drug dealer. Uh, in his early days, then came to faith in Christ. His testimony is uh, really uh, quite fantastic. Not that you need a fantastic uh, testimony uh, to come to the Lord, but uh, it's amazing to see how the Lord changed him. Mez is known for his views on ministry to the poor because that's the environment that he grew up in. In an article published at For the Church website, Mez gives 10 things to know about ministry among the poor. Excuse me. Well, I commend the whole article to you, I want to give you the first point as a way to understand what Mez believes is the best way to minister to the poor. And this is not just his thoughts. This is what he has gathered over years of experience and from the scriptures. The first thing he says is this, Please stop thinking of ministry to the poor only in terms of mercy ministry. Then this is what he says below that point. Often, well-meaning, rich churches and or middle-class Christians come into financially poor communities to do good works, usually in the form of a handout or some uh, form of debt counseling. Then, if anybody happens to get saved, they are encouraged to go to a church outside their community and culture. As a result, these new believers are forced to assimilate to middle-class cultural values and norms. The best mercy ministry is a healthy, local, gospel-preaching church, preaching the gospel. That's funny, he says local gospel-preaching church, preaching the gospel. Loving the poor and discipling people right at the heartbeat of our poor communities. Now, there's a lot there and a lot we should explore as a church, not only as we consider Um, our own backyard, but also in terms of planting and or revitalizing churches someday, which is something that we've talked about and need to continue talking about. But notice what he says about the best mercy ministry. The best mercy ministry is a healthy local gospel church. Notice he says, preaching the gospel, loving the poor, and discipling people. Preaching the gospel Loving the poor and discipling people. And, and, and really, Mez could, in his uh, way of speaking, uh, unpack that so richly for us if he were here. And I do hope to have him here someday for that purpose. But notice his emphasis on preaching the gospel first. This is the foundation. This is the foundation. And it is not void of the fruit of the gospel in our lives and loving and discipling. Notice he brings that up as well. But what Mez is modeling for us here is what Jesus states in our text this morning. In essence, loving God always precedes and is the foundation of loving our neighbor. Loving God as those who are in him and have been justified by him is to obey him. And he calls us to be proclaimers of the gospel. And in so doing to call people to repentance and faith as we love them. And that's part and parcel of our main idea. If, you're, uh, if you have your worship folder there, it's written for you on the back of that, where the notes are located. If you're tuning in to the live stream this morning, those should have been emailed to you. That is our main idea. Loving God always precedes and is the foundation of loving our neighbor. I want us to see this morning four scenes in Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet. The first scene is this, the setting The setting in verses 1 and 2. The first thing we see is this dinner with friends. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, as if we would have forgotten John. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, John wants us to remember, this is who this is. So they gave a dinner for him there. Wouldn't you think that that was appropriate? I mean, like a big potluck for this guy who's been raised from the dead, you know. It's a very special dinner. It's particular friends of Jesus. It's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, of course, who John, as we said, points out that Jesus has raised from the dead. Now, this is, again, all in light of Jesus seeking to be careful because of the plot to kill him, as we saw last week at the uh, end of um, our passage and study last week. And we see in the verses at the end of our passage this morning, the ramification of Jesus' actions are still reverberating. As we just read, uh, the Jews want to kill Lazarus and get rid of the evidence of Jesus' most astonishing miracle. We also take notice of the setting around the table. Notice what's what's happening here. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who was reclining with him at the table. Mary is not yet mentioned. It's not mentioned where she is quite yet. Martha is serving them, which seems to kind of be her modus operandi, her, her mode of operation. She's, a, she's more outspoken. She's more of the servant. So we remember Luke chapter 10, where she's busy serving the Lord, running about, in the house as Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, which is an interesting thought as we consider what Mary does here. And there's nothing wrong at all with what Martha is doing. This is service to the Lord. She's serving Him. And there's something so very right about that. She's busy serving the dinner, it would seem. And then we notice Lazarus. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. This is the the typical... Um, posture at the, the the table in the Middle East, they would recline on their sort of on their sides. I'm sorry to disappoint you with the Last Supper painting that is so uh, famous. No, they really did. They kind of laid on their sides and and ate um, with their hand as they leaned on the other. I love this posture of uh, Lazarus reclining, resting, and communing with Jesus around the table. We know from the previous passage as Jesus is contemplating the imminent death of Lazarus that Lazarus and Jesus are close. These are Jesus' best friends in the world in all reality. But can you imagine the kind of connection and love Lazarus feels for Jesus after Jesus has raised him from the dead? Like that, that I would be so used of God to put on display who the Messiah is. Now there's got to be a little part of him that's like, I'm a little disappointed because I was kind of enjoying the presence of the glory of God, right? And, and, and I heard you call my name and boom, I'm back. But he's back with the Lord, certainly. The Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, enfleshed. But there, there has to be some sort of a closeness even more so here, don't you think? The scene is a beautiful scene. I mean, think about this. Jesus risks exposure to be with his friends. The very event that caused the religious leaders to actually put into motion their plan to capture and kill him. He has moved back into that position and risks being exposed. So he is there with the one whom he has raised. He is there with Martha who is happily serving him. And we think about this, one of the characteristics of God is that God is love. God is all of who he is at, all at once because God is. I am that I am. And here we see in space and time the outward action of God's love for those who are his. Jesus embodies the love of God. And he is with those whom he loves and they are happily in communion with him around a meal. Earlier in John 11, we see Jesus' love for his friends expressed in waiting for the glory of God and Lazarus' death and subsequent resurrection. Here we see Jesus' love in his presence with his friends. He is with them. And one of the things that Amber and I uh, emphasize when we are doing premarital counseling with young couples especially is um, that uh, we, we notice these characteristics of Jesus and we think about Jesus' love for the church. And we think about Jesus' um, ministry with his disciples. And one of the things we emphasize is that he is with them. He is present with them. There's hardly a day of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, after his baptism that he is not with his men. He's present with them. Remember Jesus' words, dear ones, this morning for us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here we see Jesus' love in His presence. Believer, if you are in Christ this morning, I want you to hear and let this resonate with your soul this morning. This is the love of Christ. He is present with you. Even as we await His return, He, along with the Father, sends us His Spirit And later in this very gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit will be with them in his absence until he returns again. This promise is for us believers. The triune God is present with us and the Holy Spirit is the promise that we will also physically be in the presence of Jesus. And this is that hope. Let's lean into that hope. Hope this morning, no matter what we are facing. And I can't pretend to know all of what you are facing. I do know what some of you are facing because I have the joy of being one of your pastors. And I know that, and I pray that this would be a balm to you today, that Jesus is present with you. He has sent his spirit into your life and and his spirit is with you. His spirit is um, confirming with your spirit that you are a child of God. And he is the down payment. And he is the promise that Jesus will return. And even as we have Jesus present with us by his spirit, we do await that physical presence, do we not? As we see, uh, we're kind of jealous of this, aren't we here? This meal, and we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're all going to be reclining with Jesus and enjoying a meal. But perhaps you're one who is not trusted Christ and you do not know God's presence through His Spirit. Listen to the gospel in this message today. Listen to what Jesus says about His own burial, which is an echo of what He is about to do. And my plea with you is to turn from your sin and trust in Him. Well, while Martha is serving and Lazarus is resting, we now see what Mary is up to. Secondly, verse 3, the sacrifice, the sacrifice. Look at John 12 and verse 3. Mary, therefore, therefore, you know, we're, this is what she's doing, this is what she's up to, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's interesting to think of what Martha and Lazarus are doing in light of what we see Mary do here. I don't think we want to diminish the worshiping or of serving the Lord like Martha is doing. Or diminish the, the resting in the Lord, perhaps we could say, of what Lazarus is doing. But Mary makes a sacrifice. Mary brings in an expensive pound of ointment and begins to worship Jesus by anointing him with it and wiping his feet with her hair. As we read this, does this strike you as odd? I mean, if you've been around the church for a, a while, you've heard the story, but have you ever thought about the what's going on here? Have you ever wondered, what is Mary doing here? What does this symbolize? What does she recognize? And, and dear ones, just a note of studying the Bible here, that's why context is so important. Because... We know what happens previous to this and what she begins to recognize about the Lord. Well, it's likely that Jesus' feet have already been washed. This is typically done as one, uh, one of the first things when one enters the home of another. Typically, the house servant washes the feet of the guests who have traveled the dusty and grimy roads to get there. So it seems like we are seeing Mary go above and beyond here. This is beyond the normal. I would say, in fact, that I would coin this as worshipful. Mary seems to be coming into a greater understanding of who Jesus is. After all, her brother who was dead for four days, so as we've said in the past, he was dead, dead, is sitting there at the table with Jesus. Perhaps this is the first time she has seen Jesus since Lazarus has been raised and her form of gratitude is to anoint him like a king. In fact, um, the parallel passage says that this begins on, her, on, on his head and it drips down to his feet and she begins to wash his feet. I mean, just think about the, the echoes of Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. Messiah is uh, the Old Testament word. Christ is the word that we use in the New Testament. And think about what she is recognizing here. We recall also the gifts of the Magi who bring the child Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense would be very similar probably to this idea of this, some translations say spikenard. Gifts for a king. But echoes we recall as well, gifts of the grave as Jesus himself says here in a moment. Well, John describes the house being filled with the fragrance of the perfume. My mind is drawn to the temple being filled with the smells of incense and worship of God and Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There's often an association with atonement in blood when you read those passages at the time of the um, incense being burned in the Old Testament. And, and this seems to be the intent of what happens here. The, the, the altar of incense was lit and then there was blood applied to the horns of it to make an atonement for the people. And perhaps even without knowing, Mary here is uh, beginning to fulfill a, a prophecy in regard to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement. As she bathes Jesus' feet in this expensive perfume, she's in a sense preparing Him for His work of atonement. Again, I think it's it's proper for us to see Martha as worshiping through service and Lazarus as resting in Christ. And even as we see that, we see Mary as worshiping through sacrifice. How so? Well, this is a pound of this ointment. It's a pound. This is a very expensive ointment that she pours out on Christ. We'll see in a moment that uh, Judas comments on the expense. He says, it could be sold for 300 denarii. Commentators tell us uh, this is about a year's wage. And if you consider 300 and you take out the Sabbaths, that they wouldn't have worked, it comes out about right. 300 days wages, a full year. D.A. Carson in his commentary explains, the sum was enormous. Either Mary and her family were very wealthy or perhaps this was a family heirloom that had been passed down to her, end quote. Either way, we recognize the sacrifice here. It is immense. It is not to say that either way of Martha or Lazarus' love and worship of Jesus is not significant, but Mary shows the level of her love and worship here that expresses a significant understanding of who Jesus is. This is a significant gift for a significant person worship is giving one what they are due worship that's where it comes from giving one what they are due what they are worth and, and 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 mary here is saying you are worth an expensive heirloom you you are worth more than the value that i could place upon this very Expensive gift. What this is not expressing is a sense of earning anything from Christ, but rather recognizing what he has given and then expressing gratitude. That is worship. I think it's right for us to assume that she is coming to him after the resurrection of Lazarus and in recognition of who he is and saying thank you. And giving worship to him. This is the kind of worship, by the way, we are to give to the Lord as a sacrifice of praise, as the scripture says. Not as the priests in Malachi in our Old Testament reading who bring the injured, worthless sacrifices. No, this is the sacrifice of value. The sacrifice due the worth of the one who is being praised. This is a sacrifice of praise. Taking that which is valuable to us and giving it to him. Again, I want to make clear, we're not giving something to him to earn something. But because he has done it all, we give a worship and sacrifice to him. It is not by compulsion. It is, not, it is by choice. Jesus wasn't reclining at the table saying, Mary, where is the sacrifice of praise? No, she of her own accord comes with the costly perfume. Jesus doesn't demand a certain amount, but Mary gives a great amount. Believer, are you willing to worship him with everything that you are? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, we're to be living sacrifices to Christ. But what does he say that how we are to do that? We're to do that in view of God's mercy, not as a means of attaining his mercy. It is in view of everything great and grand that he has done, which we did not deserve. That's what mercy implies. And our response is living sacrifices to him. Paul says this is our reasonable act of spiritual worship. We, we, we want to emphasize sometimes, we want to bring this back to our minds sometimes, worship is not only what we do on Sunday mornings. Sunday morning, gathered worship is super important. We put a lot of emphasis on that, and rightly so. But, but worship is also how we live our lives sacrificially for the Lord. And then that becomes the foundation of how we live our lives sacrificially for one another and for outsiders as well. Kind of sounds like something Jesus said, love God and love neighbor, Right? We come back to that a lot. Well, it's important. But it's not to earn anything. It is the proper response to so great a salvation. It is the gratitude for the grace already given. And that's what Mary is doing here. That's how we're to respond, dear ones. Is it, in a sense some sort of an obligation, well, I think it's okay to recognize that perhaps in part. But I think the better word is gratitude for what he has done. If God... One of my favorite lines from a mid-90s Christian alternative band called Black Eyed Siva. If you know the story of the seven of Nine, sons of Siva, it's a funny name if you get it. But they say this in one of the lines of their song, it says, if God has called you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. What is our sacrifice of praise? What is God calling you to perhaps sacrifice? Now, it doesn't have to be some specific thing like, I need to sit down and figure this thing out. No. He already calls you to give up your life. He says, take up your cross and follow me. So it's everything, right? And there's joy in that. Absolute joy. in expressing gratitude for the one who has reconciled you to himself. If you're not in Christ this morning, My plea with you is to not hear me saying you must do something to earn that mercy and grace. You can't. You can't earn mercy and grace or there wouldn't be mercy and grace. Christ has died on behalf of sinners so that you come to him only with your sin and say, this is it. Come with the indebtedness of your sin and the need of Christ's righteousness and you say... Here's the sin, you paid for it, now I need your righteousness, Christ. And he gives it to you. And then out of that righteousness, you live for him. So my call to you is to repent, to turn from your sin, and believe the gospel. Well, as we mentioned in passing, the immensity of this sacrifice does not go unnoticed, least of all not by Judas, as we see in our next point. The suggestion in verses 4 through 6. The suggestion... Notice how John describes him here. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he's not denying that Judas was one of the twelve, but he was the one who was about to betray him. Judas is a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. He's distinguished from the other Judas who comes later. He's Judas Iscariot. But he's a false follower. He's a false friend. He's a betrayer. And he is a thief. This is true character. Notice what Judas says though. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And the as the other passages, the parallel passages uh, tell us, the other disciples were kind of like yeah, good point, Judas. Little do they know. right? What, the, what is the focus, at least outwardly, that Judas says? It's on the poor. That seems noble enough, doesn't it? But from what John says, he has ulterior motives. He's hoping to be able to line his own pockets with some of that cash. He was a thief. Being the one who... Held the purse, he did not care about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge in the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Uh, some translations say he would pilfer. I like that word. He's a thief. He's he's a thief. They don't know that at the time. Notice as well how many how much verbiage is spent on Judas here as opposed to Mary. In our way of looking at it, Mary gets one verse, Judas gets three, I think. Mary has made a sacrifice of worship. Judas is seeking to make himself look more noble while seeking to pat his pockets. This is the opposite of true worship and sacrifice, by the way. It feigns righteousness while looking out for its own interests. We can do that. We can make ourselves look like we're giving a sacrifice of praise when all we're seeking to do is bring the praise and the focus upon ourselves. This is a fake worship that accompanies false conversion. Judas' attitude is to come to Christ asking, what's in it for me? The believer says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. No expectation of anything in return because all is already given. The gift is given in salvation, in reconciliation, in adoption. The gift is given. So our response is gratitude. Judas is a thief, just like his father the devil Seeking to steal the joy of this moment by twisting what is certainly good, giving to the poor, and taking away from the proper worship of God. This is what Satan does. Has God really said? He throws some good and righteous thing in there. No, the the, the proper focus is upon the Lord in this moment. Let us not let love of neighbor supersede love of God. That is, after all, the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like unto it. That's how Jesus says it. Remember, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it. The first one is foundational. You cannot do the. Se- I'm getting ahead of myself. I probably have this in my notes already. Yes, we cannot truly love our neighbor without truly loving God first. That is not to say that the unconverted have no capacity to love neighbors, but, that, but love that is rooted in the one who is love ultimately cannot express true love in the sense that is devoid of the one who is love. Go back and listen to the recording later. Slow it down, you'll get that. Again, if we happen to see uh, the love of God expressed in someone who is unconverted, uh, it is because we are all image bearers Not saying it's impossible for someone to do that. What I'm saying is that the true heartfelt motivation of that can only be for those who are in Christ, who have been transformed by the love of God. We love Him because what? He first loved us, right? Judas would feign righteousness in order to. Make it look as if he is noble in doing the right thing. But secretively in his heart, he wants what's in it for him. Judas's problem is not one of truthfulness, but of one of priority. Which he's not going to get. He's unconverted. He is not a believer. It's not one of truthfulness, but one of priority, which is what the Lord himself points out in our final point. And we call this the solutions because there's two different solutions that we see here in these verses, verses 7 through 11. Jesus' reply to Judas is that Mary be left alone. Jesus said, verse 7, leave her alone. For what purpose? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Why is she to be left alone? She is focused on the right thing. She may not fully understand all of what Jesus is getting at, but she does recognize the greater importance of his worship in this moment. And Jesus brings the greater meaning to it, even if she does not recognize it at this time. Jesus is focused upon what is next to come in his earthly ministry. Um, The the, the death and Jesus' then resurrection of Lazarus is the first domino that tips. And the dominoes are beginning to fall, and Jesus knows this. In fact, we're going we're to see in a little bit that when the Gentiles come and say, Sir, we want to see Jesus, he says it's time. My hour has come. He's going to die. We know as well that he will be raised and he will ascend. We are also aware that they don't quite understand all this yet. Jesus' response to Judas concerning the poor is, hey, look, the poor you always have with you. What does Jesus mean by this statement? So he says, Mary is doing the right thing in focusing on me right now. The poor you always have with you. Well, as we just said, Jesus will not be with them physically after he ascends. He is is foreshadowing the idea that he is going to ascend and no longer be with them. And he addresses that in John chapter 14 all the way through John chapter 17. And he speaks of, as we mentioned earlier, the Spirit coming and being his presence with us until he comes again. Now what he's not saying is don't serve the poor. Hear me say that, okay? He's not saying do not serve the poor. He's saying that while he is here, his mission is the priority and true love of neighbor and poor. And the poor is rooted in who he is and who God is, and the one who is love. The priority is that he go to the cross, that he die in the place of sinners, that he be raised again, that he ascends on high, that the Spirit comes, that we, uh, in the meantime, are proclaiming the gospel to guess who? The poor and all else. This is the call to you and me, first and foremost, and the body believers represented here in this local assembly. And then to work around us, not as much as the church gathered, but as more the church scattered. Our mission is clear as the gathered church. We kind of get the both and here of this. We are to preach the word, administer the ordinances, and hold each other accountable. That's the goal of gathered worship and the gathered church. But as we live our lives as Christians in the world, we are to bring the message of the good news. And we are, uh, we are able to meet the needs of those around us. But we do both. It is not enough for us simply to care for the poor concerning their physical needs. We must proclaim the gospel to them. And Jesus is setting up that priority here. That's the point I'm trying to make. But we also must not simply proclaim the gospel Though that is the priority. There is no gospel fruit in telling the hungry person, be warm and be filled, as James, Jesus' brother tells us. When we can meet needs, we need to meet needs. But we need to meet the spiritual need as we meet the physical need. We must proclaim the gospel to them. One of the things I love about our brothers in this church that go out street preaching, um, they've, they've brought reports back to us of times where they've actually been able to not only preach the gospel, but when somebody comes in need, give them a meal and sit down with them, and have further gospel conversations with them. Such an encouragement that they're doing both things. They're they're making the priority preaching the gospel, but as people have need, and they're able to meet it, they meet it. The way this gospel proclamation and gospel fruit is expressed in your life, on the one hand, is non-negotiable. What I mean, there is only one gospel, and that message should be the same message regardless of who's proclaiming it. However, how you interact with those less fortunate is something that can and must have diversity. And it's according to your passions and giftedness. But the action of it is as fruit of your justification and it's non-negotiable. So in other words, you may have a passion for a certain thing that may look different than someone else's passion. The gospel is the same that we proclaim. The way in which we meet people's spiritual need is the same. But the way in which we meet their physical need may be totally different from person to person. As we scatter around to the community to do things to love our neighbor, but the priority is Jesus always. So here we see Jesus giving the solution to the issue Judas uh, brings up, and we can learn from this priority of Jesus, but there is not only a solution to what has occurred with Judas and Mary here. There's also the solution from the religious leaders concerning the response to Lazarus. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, I mean, of course, they're going to come, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Hey, there was somebody raised from the dead. I mean, that's a big deal. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus. You see, there's still wonder surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus, and we should not be surprised by this. But this is a thorn in the side of the religious leaders because this miracle, this sign, is causing people to go away and believe in Jesus. And as we saw last week, they are are fearful of losing their place and their power. So now they not only plot to kill Jesus, they must also get rid of the evidence. They must kill Lazarus too. Once again, even as we read this and are reminded of this, we are also reminded of the sovereignty of God in all of this. Jesus' arrival at Bethany, the further conspiracy to kill him, this is all a part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind, even as mankind will be held responsible for his actions against the eternal Son of God. Believer, it is because of what God does through this eternal plan that we are to live lives of gratitude for him. For those who have been justified, our worship is a proper response to that justification, not a means to it. And so, once again, we are reminded of what Paul tells us that we are to be living sacrifices; that we are to be uh, to give ourselves in love of God, and then uh, built on that foundation, love of neighbor as well. And there is action to this. This is not contemplation about how we do this alone. We must act. In that gratitude. We live that out. Day after day after day. First and foremost. Again it is to the body of believers. Here in our local assembly. To which we love. And and, and show compassion. And think about Acts. The early church as they sold things. In order that people who are in need. Would be taken care of. And we do that well. I'm so thankful for that. But as we scatter. Into our community. How are we showing our gratitude for. Reconciliation by proclaiming the gospel and and caring for those in need around us. Not saying there's a particular way that you have to do this, but you have to do this. (laughs) If you're unsure of, man, I don't, help me think through some things. That's something we would love to sit down and, and do with you. We'd love to brainstorm about. Your community, where you live, things that you could get involved in, even things here around the church. Lots of opportunities for that. Uh, Steve, in our pastoral prayer this morning, prayed for Peoria Rescue Ministries. I mean, they have ministries to men, women, all around the city. We have lots of connections there. In fact, we are going to continue partnering with them in stronger and stronger ways. We're hoping that some of the men from the mission will be here with us on Sunday mornings as we preach and teach and help them through some uh, different means, some different classes and things. You can get involved in that. There's lots of things. So come and talk to us. We can help you brainstorm on that. For those who are in our midst, perhaps are watching via live stream, who do not know Christ. I want you to know no amount of virtue, no amount of good deeds can earn you reconciliation with God. Christ is the only one who could perfectly obey all of God's law and bring us into reconciliation with the triune God through his perfect life, his death, where he did not deserve that, we did his resurrection and his ascension. You must turn to him and trust in him today. If you want to know more about that or want to know how you could maybe connect with us about ways to serve in the community, Pastor Steve is going to be up here after he leads us in a final hymn here in a moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, the last thing I would want for someone to believe as they walk out of here this morning is that In the sacrifice of praise, there's some sort of way of earning favor with you. Lord, for the Christian this morning, I pray that our boldness to proclaim the gospel and our compassion in helping those less fortunate would be from a place of gratitude. Lord, the law brings guilt. We cannot fulfill it. Grace comes through Jesus Christ who did fulfill it. And gratitude is the way in which we live it out. And the way that you have called us to love you primarily and of priority. And then to love our neighbor as well. Let us live out of the fruit of justification. I pray for those who do not know you, Lord, that today would be the day that they would understand that they are a sinner. And that they need you. That they would turn to Christ in faith and repentance today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.